Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves, and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. Dr. Jeffrey Rediger is a professor at Harvard Medical School, the medical director of adult psychiatry community affairs at McLean Hospital, and the chief of behavioral medicine at Good Samaritan Medical Center. He has also spent the past two decades studying verified cases of spontaneous remission, looking for the unifying threads that might be repeatable for others with the same diagnoses. In the medical community, miraculous recoveries are often viewed with skepticism as flukes and outliers, and our insistence on clinging to old systems and beliefs has left much life-saving science collecting dust. Dr. Rediger decided to take a hard look at how we got here and the ways our misperceptions have exacerbated the presence of chronic illness and other disease. He wrote a brilliant, masterful book called Cured, The Life-Changing Science of Spontaneous Healing that I haven't stopped recommending since I put it down. It's a must-read for those of us who are healthy and anyone struggling with a tough diagnosis. Today, we talk about some of the miraculous stories that he covers, and we also chat about the root cause of illness and how our environment sets a stage for healing, the pillars associated with recovery, including nutrition, our immune systems, our personal response to stress, and healing our identities. As a physician, I'm slowly becoming aware, because of this research, of the ways in which industry has interacted with academics like me in terms of funding studies, which influences the outcome, depending on who funds it, and then the way that works with the lobbyists and the government to create this really deep misunderstanding of what nutrition is. Okay, let's get to my chat with Dr. Jeffrey Rediger. Congratulations on your book, 
It is a masterpiece. I loved it, devoured it, cannot recommend it enough. It feels like I'm sure the audience that's engaging with it are people who are both trying to find cures, but also people who never want to be in that situation in the first place. So congrats. I know it's been, it was decades worth of work. Thank you. Yes, I think it's not only for those who are trying to heal from a really challenging illness, but also for anybody who wants to improve authentic well-being in their lives at every level. And I know, and you write about this in a really beautiful way that you hoped that you would, through several decades of evaluating all of these cases and looking for common threads, that you'd be able to create some sort of formula but that's evasive, right? There's certain things you can do everything and you might still die and you could do everything wrong and you might have a spontaneous remission, but you do create a path, right? Yeah. What I began to see after years of interviewing dozen after dozens of people is that there are patterns. There's factors that are absolutely associated with health and well-being, but it's not one size fits all sort of thing in any of these four factors, there's so much individual variation where a person has to really look at their unique situation and come to terms with what works for them. Whether There are common factors across these many illnesses, but it's a unique prescription for each person. And I know that this, that you had a really fascinating backstory of coming into medicine. You have a theology degree as well, and perhaps maybe more of an open mind to ideas like belief and that we might not have all the answers ever. And then I think your commentary on what's happening is, or what has happened is so fascinating because you liken this to athletes who break records, even records that we perceive to be impossible to break. And then as soon as that's done, then many people follow. But in that way, these mysterious healings, these miracles, flukes, outliers, to use your words, we can't explain them. And so we sort of just have historically brushed them under the rug, right? Like they're dismissed without examination. Correct. And that's, yeah. Yeah, we are are taught that spontaneous remission is a fluke with no medical or scientific value. And yet, as I've been studying these cases over the years, they've upended everything that I thought I knew about health and well-being. And it's been shocking for me to come to grips with the reality that as a physician, I was trained to make a diagnosis and to start a medication, but we don't even study by and large how people heal. And so it's become a really important issue for me to just say we need to really open an era in medicine that is trying to open where we actually study very intensively how people heal and all the factors associated with that. That's a massive paradigm change for me and my colleagues. And what do you think that is? Is it because it, it there is no clear formula and therefore it feels powerless? Well, like you, you don't have power or what well, is that? I think there's a lot of layers to this. I think that when early scientists took illness from the church several hundred years ago and said, you can't blame a person for their illness or say that this illness is a judgment from God. I think that was a step forward because it it began to lessen this tendency within all of us as human beings to make judgments about things we don't really understand. So that was a step forward, I think. And it allowed these early scientists to 
begin creating a taxonomy of disease where they would identify the signs and symptoms of one illness and distinguish those from the signs and symptoms of another illness. And that created a classification system of these diseases so we could name a disease when it appeared. But those were the questions that have guided the disease era. And that's a very different set of questions about what will heal a person. And so I think we're now at the end of a disease era, and there's we're about ankle deep into these different efforts to begin actually studying what heals an individual or their life. And that's just a very different set of questions. And so it will create a very different era. And I think you touched on this, but a really important distinction is that, yeah, we, sh- we can't blame ourselves for our illnesses. Right. However, we can take responsibility for ourselves. And that's an essential distinction. And it's interesting, too, to even think about doctors in the and and I know you, I love the vision that you paint at the end of the book about the future of medicine and the role of doctors as healers. But it's interesting, too, because one of the parts of the book that I thought was so fascinating was that you you spent a fair amount of time in Brazil, right? right. Uh, trying to understand John of God and this community. And for those who haven't heard of John of God, he was this theoretically a healer and people would just have these miraculous recoveries. They claimed an insane rate, which I know is not true. And you deduce that it's really not. And I think that this extends to our perception of doctors as well. It's like really not. An unexpected healing doesn't have that much to do with the healer or physician. Right. Their right. job is to activate something, in your words, that already exists within all of us. That's absolutely true. Yes. Yeah, I, I think that a healer or a physician can spark something, but it's only sparking something that's inside of us. The people that I study, it's not the doctors or the medications that get them better. And I've become really interested in what sparks that that internal awakening that makes a person really get in touch with their deeper, authentic core. So you're just to sort of orient people within your view, there are the four pillars of health, healing your immune system, healing yep. your nutrition, healing your stress response, and then healing your identity. That's right. And is that the order typically when in which in terms of all the people that you study, does that seem to be the order that emerged as like where to start or are people working mm-hmm. on all of these things concurrently? Yeah, I think uh, it's different for every individual. Some people actually didn't go through the stages quite that way. I wrote the book in an effort to try to describe how I awakened to these different pillars as I went through these for the last 18 or 19 years. I introduced it in the way that I discovered them. I talk a lot about nutrition, and that's a, a massively important factor for a lot of people. But the truth is, the other factors can be so important that I'm sure some people could have eaten cat food and still gotten better. And so right. some people, there were a few people that I've studied over the years that didn't change the nutrition at all. Most did. 88% became vegetarian, but not everybody did. And, and people had very different kinds of diets they adopted. So they look different on the surface, even though they're not so different underneath. So there are individual variations in terms of how these factors really came together in one lived life. 
let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. Toomey has a soft side. Discover their new Acer bag collection in its pillowy pleats, satin finish, and crescent shape. Acer is the bag to carry for your 9 to 5 and the 5 to 9 plans that follow. Versatility, after all, is Toomey's signature. Shop the full Azra collection on Toomey.com or at a Toomey store near you. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. So let's start with the immune system, since I know we're all hopped up on trying to understand how to balance our immune systems, particularly in this time of COVID, and what can happen when you have an overactive immune response and what's happening. And I love, I'd never heard of Dr. Coley. You also, I think, do an incredible job throughout the book of pointing to some of these heroes and these serendipitous discoveries that we also failed to pick up the thread on. So can you tell us a little bit about Dr. Coley? Yeah. So Dr. Coley was a physician in New York who took care of a young woman who had sarcoma, and she succumbed very quickly and died. She was, I think, 19, 18 or 19 years old and was, he was really hit hard with this sarcoma that very quickly became metastatic, infected her breast, and she declined quickly and died. And he was distressed by, I think, just how young and what kind of future she would have had otherwise. And so he began combing the literature, the research literature, looking for what he had missed and if there was something he could have done differently. And he came across some cases that where a person had a fever during their sarcoma and they had a remission. And he began to get very interested and he began to realize, oh, these people, something, this fever was spiking their immune system, activating their immune system. And he knew that the immune system is what kicks cancers out before we know about them or after we know about them. And if you can really strengthen or empower the immune system, that it can sometimes kick out cancer. It's the immune system that locates the mutating cells and kicks them out of our bodies. So he then devised a strategy that progressively became more successful in using bacteria strain. It was actually a streptococcus strain to infect a person, boost their immune system, and he was having a pretty decent relapse of or a, a remission of cancer. But he was developing this in around the 1920s or so, and it was just when chemotherapy medications were developing. We were just beginning to get very excited about the power of medications to change our lives. These silver bullets, we thought. Penicillin had been invented not too much prior to this. We began to develop medicines for cancer called immunosuppressants, which instead of activating the immune system, suppress the immune system. They're immune suppressants and try to take out cancer on the strength of the medication, which is a very different path than strengthening the immune system. And what happened is that path won and his research went into the dustbin of history for many decades. But it was I tell the story in the book about a Dr. Rosenfield who came across a case of spontaneous remission while he was a surgery resident. This old guy came in and had stomach cancer, had told Dr. Rosenfeld he had gastric carcinoma, which is a deadly form of cancer. 
And Dr. Rosenfeld didn't believe him. He said, that's not possible. You wouldn't be here if that was the case. But then he did the gallbladder surgery that this gentleman needed. And when he looked at the liver as he was taking out the gallbladder, he thought how he noticed how healthy the liver looked. He went back in the files and looked, and this guy did have biopsy determined, biopsy proven gastric carcinoma, something like eight or 10 years before, and it had disappeared. And so that began his quest to figure out how this guy could have survived, and he ended up helping pioneer at NIH this whole new way of thinking, which is now using the immune system as a way of fighting cancer. And we're starting to develop these new kinds of medications in the last decade or so that really empower the immune system, which is a much more promising way to go. And we talk, we've talked about Semmelweis at Goop before and the story of him, that his story of finally figuring out why so many young mothers were dying, giving birth and making the connection that it was the interns who were touching dead bodies, then going straight to delivering babies without washing his hands. And he famously ended up ostracized and ends up in a mental institute. And you also told the story of Beauchamp, who I had also never heard of, who was going against... Pasteur. Yeah. So how many, and, and maybe you can tell us a little bit about Beauchamp, but like how many of these examples of counter thinkers were excommunicated where we could potentially go back and find some new avenues or ways of thinking? I think it has happened. The interaction of Louis Beauchamp and Louis Pasteur Antoine Bechamp and Louis Pasteur is a fascinating story. I try to tell in Cured a number of stories that show this history has always been there, but we've ignored this. So Louis Pasteur is the father of the germ theory, and this is very relevant during the time of COVID. He helped prove definitively that germs existed, and he became very famous for that and has been very honored for that across the world. Pasteurization is a process that developed from that, for example. But Antoine Bechamp was a colleague of his in France, and the two of them argued intensely for the rest of their lives because Antoine Bechamp said, no, the germ is not the problem. You can't just nuke the germ and think that takes care of the problem. He said, if you heal the inner terrain, you won't get ill. And so what we call the microbiome, he called the inner terrain. And he said that we are surrounded by millions of bacteria and viruses and pathogens every day inside and outside of our bodies, and they only become invaders when something has already broken down in our bodies. And so they are a symptom of a deeper diseased state. And his analogy was, if you have a pile of trash in the middle of the street, do you want to keep waving away the flies or do you want to remove the trash? And he said, if we take care of our bodies, if we really nurture health and well-being in our bodies, in our microbiome, in our inner terrain, then you're not going to be vulnerable to getting ill in the same way. You're not going to be vulnerable to getting a bacterial infection or a viral infection, etc. And we now have 30 years of microbiome research that is completely validating that. But unfortunately, it takes 30 years or more before research in the lab gets into the doctor's offices and becomes part of clinical practice. And so 
you can read about the microbiome and the great literature and research on this, but it's not impacting most doctors' practices yet. And so many patients don't know about this, and it's not changing near as many lives as it should be. Yeah, no, and something that we talk about a lot, and also just the fact that the gut as a second brain, like just it's huge impact on health and well-being. And I think that anyone, regardless of whether they have a diagnosis or not, or where they sit on an inflammation spectrum, will find like when they clean up their diet, they feel dramatically better and different. And yet it's still met with raised eyebrows by many doctors or thought to be silly. But I thought that was also the China project and Campbell, the research that that was done across China. And also, was it in the Philippines that these kids, yeah, were getting liver cancer from, or liver, was it liver cancer that they were getting from aflatoxin and then the impact of diet? Yes, that's correct. And so the wealthy children were getting lots of animal products in their diet. And so the aflatoxin interacted with the animal protein they were getting in a way that turned out to be associated with liver cancer. And then Dr. Campbell at Cornell, he was raised on a farm. He was raised the way I was, eating meat two or three times a day, lots of animal products, no problem. But as a researcher, he ended up having a transformation in his views of things because he found out that the poorer kids that didn't have access to the meat or the milk or the animal products, it wasn't that they had a lower incidence of liver cancer, they had zero incidence. And so it wasn't like the statistics staring out from the page at him were a little bit different. It was a massive difference between a high incidence and zero incidence. And so that began his interest in looking at nutrition. And that then became the China study, which became what the New York Times has called the Royal Study of Epidemiology. It's the Grand Prix of Epidemiology. It's a massive study that is deeply informative about what heals and what creates disease. It's interesting how this stuff can exist in the culture. I know that the China Project sold millions of copies, and yet it still isn't. I don't know what's required for it to become. Oh, I know. Yeah, have you heard of the China study? And almost no doctor. I have wonderful, dedicated friends who are doctors, and it's just not known by physicians because, as physicians and even nutritionists, the tragic thing is. We don't understand nutrition, and we don't realize how massive a role it plays in health and illness. And that's particularly important during COVID when the countries that are doing well during COVID, they have a very different level of nutrition and much less obesity. And in the United States, where we don't, this is an opportunity for doctors and nutritionists and for our medical experts to be taking a stand and be helping people change nutrition. It's not just about putting on a mask. It's about changing nutrition, and you will not be susceptible to getting ill in the same way or your loved ones if we do really basic things around this. No, I completely agree. I think a lot, obviously, has been put on mask wearing, which is clearly important, and as is washing hands, but it seems to be that there's a massive underlying or not even underlying primary reason that we're so vulnerable, lack of upstream health care and just sitting ducks in terms of our in terms of our gut health and and overall health and the comorbidities as well. 
Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. I also had never heard of this study, which is terrifying, the Georgia State University study that revealed, to quote you, a disturbing correlation between emulsifiers, a very common additive, and cancer. Yep. Yeah, there's emulsifiers in so many of our foods. And even in a lot of our health products, or what we call health products, and that's another significant issue. And they come under lots of different names. The federal government does limit how much of an emulsifier can be in a food, whether it's guar gum or whatever. But the way food companies get around that is they just put two emulsifiers in. And so they have under the maximum amount of each emulsifier, but they just will put in more than one. And I think we all know this, right? For some reason, it's hard, but that we just need, if we can eat primarily vegetables, whole foods, as few additives as possible, things that are unprocessed will invariably do better. Did you say, did I hear you when you said 88% of the people that you studied who'd had spontaneous remissions were vegetarian? They became vegetarian. That's became. Correct. And I now I purposely told stories in Cured about people who, for example, pursued a keto diet. Because, right. Because, but, but even though those diets, a keto diet can look really different on the surface than a vegetarian diet, there were deep commonalities because what most of the people that I did studied was they eliminated processed foods, they eliminated most sugars, and they eliminated refined flours. And just those three things massively changed their dietary habits and their nutritional level. I can tell you a, a personal story that just happened to me recently that has been quite shocking to me. And even today, I got I gained a possible a bit more of insight into it. I'm, I'm a runner, and it's become a, something that's very important in my life and been inspired by the people that I study. Every level of my own way of living and perception of what health and well-being requires has been impacted by the people that I study. And this has been a professional and a personal journey. So I have a long habit, and I describe and cured, of going, for example, to the whole food salad bar. I have a very busy schedule. I'm medical director in chief at two hospitals and on the faculty and at Harvard and all that. So I have very long days. And so I have a long history of going to the salad bar at Whole Foods and getting a salad there every day. That's great. And that was certainly a step up from my prior habits, which were not good at all. But that got shut down in covid and so it was really nice for a while. All these companies and restaurants were dropping off food for us at the hospital. We were a hotspot for the coronavirus and all that. And that was all very generous and appreciated. 
but it was definitely not a step up in terms of my nutrition. So I decided at some point through this uh, last number of months that I was going to up my game nutritionally instead of weakening my immune system with poor nutrition. And so I decided to make these organic vegetable smoothies every day, which turns out to not be very expensive and it's very quick. That's the first time I had started using only organic vegetables. And I was shocked. Uh, since I run, I pay a lot of attention to my Fitbit and I'm interested in my resting heart rate. And I was shocked that within two weeks of doing these organic vegetable smoothies, with the only change being that my vegetables became organic instead of conventional, my heart rate went down into the 40s and has been sitting there most of the time since then. And the only time that changes is when I don't have organic vegetables. That's shocking. That's very tangible evidence. And so a friend, I was texting a friend about this today who knows a lot about nutrition, and she said, maybe you're allergic to glyphosate, which is the pesticides that are in most of our foods. Yeah. And I had no, I never thought of that. I was raised on a farm. I was around pesticides all the time as a kid with no care about it. I would put my hand in the stuff and was, was a big part of my life as a farm kid. So that's a fascinating thought. Maybe I'm allergic to the glyphosates and by eating organic vegetables, it has this dramatic improvement in my resting heart rate. That's wild. Even if you're not allergic to glyphosate or glyphosate, how isn't it one of those things that just be far better for us to not consume? Yeah, it's a, it's, <laughs> and we get it in these minute amounts cumulatively in so many of the foods we eat, it's there. And I think as a physician, I've slowly becoming aware because of this research of the ways in which industry has interacted with academics like me in terms of funding studies, which influences the outcome depending on who funds it, and then the way that works with the lobbyists and the government yeah. to create this really deep misunderstanding of what nutrition is. And that's it's as tragic that as doctors and nutritionists and healthcare providers, we're not teaching people what truly heals, but also that we don't take this opportunity during COVID to say, this is what's going to change the game for you in terms of your immune system. Yeah, no, it's true. And it is, you know, doctors get only a handful of hours about nutrition. Yeah. And it's not it's even, certainly it's not even good education. It's, I can tell you statements that we were taught that it turns out are completely wrong-minded. I, I remember the sentence in med school, we were taught that it's not that we have undernutrition in the United States, we have overnutrition, and that's what's causing obesity. People get too much nutrition. What's actually mm. completely wrong-minded, people don't get real nutrition, and so the hunger mechanism is repeatedly triggered because the body is looking for nutrition. And so all these empty calories create obesity all in search of real nutrition. It's so wild. It's so interesting and obvious, but yet for whatever reason, we all seem to circle the drain on it. Yeah. And it's as Claire, our, the pancreatic cancer survivor you profile in the book, as she explains too, that what we eat isn't a magic pill either. There's no, right. and you make this point repeatedly, like there is no pill for spontaneous remission. There's no guaranteed formula. And so immune system nutrition, and then stress. And you specifically say it's our stress response, right? Like stress oh. is here to stay. It's the way that we perceive it or respond to it that we really have power to control. Yes. 
because I believe that some stress is good. We all need challenge stress to grow and learn. I want to run a marathon when I have more time in my schedule and I run and that's that can be stressful, but challenge stress like running a marathon is fabulous for you if it helps you reach into your higher self and expand your understanding of what you're capable of. But that's a really different kind of stress than being in a toxic relationship or finishing work every day, depleted, run down, and questioning your value and worth. And so I think it's important for us to help people understand that the neurochemistry of being in fight, flight, or freeze for long periods of time is toxic to the physical body and the mind. It creates, this research shows, that cortisol secretion bathing your cells, the cells in your body, the brilliant cells in your immune system, that makes them sluggish and inaccurate, and it causes them to make mistakes. And that's how you end up with cancer or chronic inflammation that gives rise to diabetes or heart disease or depression or bipolar disorder or autoimmune disease. It's an immune system that's gone awry in all of these different illnesses. And healing that chronic inflammation is the key to healing your mind and your body. I thought, too, that I'd never really encountered this, but the discussion that you start about toning the vagus nerve was fascinating. And Barbara Mm -hmm. Fredrickson's sort of her, her expanded definition of love. So can you talk a little bit about what that means? Yes. Yes. So she has this fabulous phrase called micro moments of positivity resonance. So it sounds like Greek initially, but she talks about how these brief social interactions that we have are so important for jumpstarting the immune system. So whether it's talking and making a genuine connection with a mother pushing a baby carriage while you're walking down the sidewalk together and opening the door for her or something else. When we have these or something at the checkout counter, if we just really take these moments to connect with a person, the vagus nerve is the super highway for the parasympathetic nervous system in our bodies. And that is what turns off chronic fight, flight, or freeze. This is what turns off the cortisol secretion. When you smile, when we crinkle our eyes and make eye contact with somebody in a way that our eyes glisten and focus on a person, that's the parasympathetic nerve that is doing that. And that is incompatible with being in chronic fight or flight. And so it turns off cortisol secretion and unleashes dopamine, the pleasure molecule, uh, serotonin, the happy molecule, and norepinephrine, these other molecules that relax us and get us into a state where the immune system turns on and hums, where the immune system cells become accurate in their in the T cells and the B cells and all of these things begin to just fire up and hum much more accurately. And so that's the healing mode and our bodies do well when they're in that mode. And we are social creatures. And when we know how to interact in a way that's authentic with those we care about, and you can feel that love and connection, whether it's with somebody you know well or just somebody at the checkout counter, it's fabulous for the immune system. And I love this idea, that this upward spiral of the heart, that yeah. at the more you do that, those small moments, you don't need to be in relationship, you don't need to be married, you don't need to be in love, just those small moments, the more that you do it, 
yes. and experience moments of love, compassion, and connection that it exponentially increases. Yes. Which is so beautiful. Yes. It shows the power of connection. We are social creatures. And so that's why I think the way we're talking today is so critical for all of our illnesses but and well-being, but also during COVID when a lot of people are forced into isolation, forced into less activity. The people talk about the COVID-15 pounds people gain sometimes, all of these things. We need to find a way to improve our immune systems and improve our authentic social connections in spite of these things. Mm-hmm. The back of the book, when you talk about the fourth part of this, I thought was really moving and beautiful, which I know is probably, I know you're, well, you're a theologian and a doctor, right? So mm-hmm. you balance the two without getting entangled in the dogma of either. But this idea, which which is a commonality between all of these people who healed, which was this, I'm not going to die, like acknowledging, facing death, considering it, and then ultimately rejecting it. And I know for some of them, there was like a, vi- a vision component or a feeling of being in touch with something else, like with love, yeah. but that there was this, and it's funny, even thinking about, I can't remember his name, the the doctor who uses hands-on healing, Dr. Isam Naimi in Cleveland. Similarly, I've talked to people who do something similar where they feel like they are sort of not doing anything themselves, but essentially a channel, just downloading information or reconnecting people to some sort of source, but that they also say it's love. There's no, not in a soft and fuzzy way, not in a like Hallmark card way, but that what they're bringing, but that's what it's closest to. Yes. Yeah, that was a very difficult concept for me to really crystallize and know how to talk about as a physician and a scientist. I, and so I, I began eventually to frame that as a healing of beliefs and identity. And yeah. that makes a lot of sense to me. I spend my days at McLean in a psychiatric hospital, and I spend my evenings at a large urban medical center. And so I see the ailments of the mind and the during the day and the ailments of the body at night, which the ailments of the body are really much more about ailments of the mind than I ever realized. But that's a whole other discussion. What I've come to realize is that many people in these hospital settings, but also many of the people I've studied, they've taught me that it, sometimes it takes an illness for a person to wake up and realize that they need to stop taking care of everyone else. They need to stop mm-hmm. responding to the perceived expectations of others and begin focusing on what is right and good about who they are and heal the beliefs that cause them to question that. And that's a really deep discussion. How we feel about who we are as a human being, how we feel about our value, about the importance of what we bring into the world, how we feel about the friendliness or lack of friendliness of the universe we live in. These are massive factors in terms of how illness presents in our bodies. And so the most common thing that people have said to me over the years is that it took an illness for them to wake up and realize they needed to stop taking care of everyone else and begin focusing on the things that caused them to come alive and that put a light in their eyes. And so what I've started to do in recent years is I'll tell a person, okay, you're here because you are just exhausted. You've been doing all this stuff for others. 
and we got to help create a selfish bitch project for you because it's going to feel selfish initially to start focusing on what you need in your life. My mm. friend Uber Mate has written a book called When Your Body Says No, and he just is very good at saying, if you don't know how to say no, your body will eventually say no for you, whether it's your mind or your body, whether it's anxiety and depression or panic attacks or something more physical. Mm-hmm. And that's a massive issue. Yeah, I loved you. You're ta- you were talking near the end of the book about the role of therapy and how for some people it does nothing. For others, it seems to be incredibly dramatic. And if you don't mind, I'd love to read these lists, these conditions associated with poor survival outcomes and then the conditions associated with longer survival. So poor survival outcomes, inflexibility associated with low self-esteem or fixed worldview, skepticism about self-help techniques or a limited ability to apply them, other activities seemed more immediately appealing, meaning was habitually sought outside in the individual from some external source, strong contrary views about the validity of spiritual ideas. And then on the flip side, conditions associated with longer survival, strong will to live, actual changes in habits of thought and activity, relaxation practices, meditation, mental imaging, cognitive monitoring, and becoming involved in a search for meaning in one's life, which I think is beautiful. And not that woo-woo. It's not. (laughs) I think a person can go to therapy, but we can use therapy and talk to actually avoid the changes, the hard changes we have to make in our lives. And so talk is cheap. We have to actually change our behaviors, change our beliefs, change our perceptions of ourselves, change our beliefs about our value, change our beliefs about the nature of the world we live in. And that's hard work. That's more than just having a chat once a week with a therapist. Absolutely. And I think that you make a significant nod to this in the context of Brazil, for example, and the community around John of God and the healing that was happening. Because what you observed and having gone to watch and talk to people wasn't so much that John of God himself, and he was a terrible person, or deeply problematic person, wasn't what he was doing. It was that people were changing their diets, taking a break from their lives, reflecting and healing their identity. Yes, correct. A microcosm of, and focusing, prioritizing their own wellness and taking a break from the life that had theoretically participated in making them ill in the first place. Yes, that's right. And one of the things that's been fascinating for me to see over the years is that a person can get a diagnosis of cancer, fatal cancer, and they can actually feel relieved because they'll say, wow, so I now, I find that I can focus on what I need. I have an excuse to do things for my own life and well-being. And that in itself often is the entrance into a really different way of relating to themselves that can be life-saving in some cases. When a person is diagnosed with cancer and their response is, wow, so I guess I don't have to go to law school to please my parents now, for example. Mm. That is can be the entrance into a much more authentic life where a person might initially feel like it's selfish, but it's not. It's really taking their own needs and valuing themselves at a whole different level. And that can be a life-changing transition. 
I know you need to go and teach a class full of med students, but that leads me. I love this quote, and I think it's such a beautiful summation. It's Bernard Kratos. Mm. I'm probably butchering his name, but the founder of the Death Cafe movement. And he mm. said, if you put all the intensity of yourself in this moment, then you live. Yeah. I thought that was beautiful. Yeah. yeah. I could talk to you for a few more hours. I, I will let you go. Thank you again for your book. It is such a gift. And I hope everyone reads it and gives it to everyone in their lives who might need it. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Dr. Jeffrey Rediger. For more on his work, pick up a copy of his book, Cured, The Life-Changing Science of Spontaneous Healing, and visit his site at drjeffreyrediger.com. Rediger is spelled R-E-D-I-G-E-R. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.